Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Mark Lonsborough. I'm Associate Director of Education here at the RSA, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you all to this special online event. Today, we're going to be addressing some of the challenges explored in a recent RSA report called Pinball Kids, which examines the underlying factors that lead to school exclusions and looks to learn from best practice to support those students most at risk of exclusion. As exclusion rates in England remain stubbornly high and pandemic upheaval only increases the complexity of the challenges involved, I'm joined today by four expert guests to explore the impact that exclusion has on lives and learning and to ask how can we work better to tackle exclusion at its roots and support vulnerable young people not only to stay in but to thrive in school. So with me today we have uh, Vic Goddard. Uh, Vic is principal uh, at Passmore's Academy in Harlow in Essex. Uh, Passmore's is a pinball kids case study school and you may also recognise Vic from the acclaimed Channel 4 documentary series Educating Essex. Uh, we have Kerrigan Mariner and Kerry is Head of Behaviour and Attendance Support at London Borough of Tower Hamlets, a borough that the RSA is currently working with uh, closely to better understand the relationships between families and schools, particularly with relationship to um, uh, school exclusion. Hi Kerry. Hi. Uh, and Luke Billingham. Uh, Luke's a youth and community worker and also Head of Strategy at Reach Children's Hub, a charity that provides cradle to career support for children and young people in Feltham, South West London. Uh, and finally, uh, we have Emmanuel Anapa. Emmanuel is a youth leader from Hackney who is currently studying politics and international relations at the University of Exeter. Emmanuel is also a writer who's had his work published in the Independent, HuffPost and ID and was featured in the Guardian's Young, British and Black series this summer. Uh, hi to uh, Luke and to Emmanuel. Hello. So uh, welcome everybody and thanks very much for your for joining us today. Um, I know that it's an incredibly busy time and challenging time for everybody um, and you're uh, needed in your place of work so uh, thanks for helping us to communicate uh, these messages today and to engage in this conversation. Before we do speak to the panel, um, I just want to kind of uh, give everybody a bit of insight into our recent Pinball Kids research and the report which came out earlier this year. So the the background to this and the rationale for the project, uh, which started in 2018, is that we'd seen a rapid rise in the number of exclusions, uh, almost 60% increase in the number of permanent exclusions from school, schools in England uh, in, the, in the five years leading up to the start of the research. And within that number, as you can see from these graphs, there's a disproportionate exclusion of vulnerable and disadvantaged pupils. So for children with special educational needs and disabilities, there's almost six times more likely to be excluded. Uh, pupils eligible for free school meals four times more likely looked after children five times more likely black, black caribbean children three times more likely and through close consultation with pupil referral units in london uh, we had a sense that many of these pupils might well thrive in mainstream education if the appropriate support it was in place so uh, essentially these were unnecessary school exclusions now, when we started the, the research, much of the, much of the research that had been done on exclusions up until that point had focused on the levels of exclusion, who'd been affected, where children go to after they've been excluded. But we really wanted to, to look at what happens before the point of exclusion uh, how, and how intervening early might be able to prevent unnecessary exclusions from happening in the first place. So in order to get there, we, um, we looked really broadly at the existing literature. We looked at government data and both sort of national data and local authorities data about um, the numbers of pupils enrolled in people referral units, uh, how, how, how uh, exclusions were being funded and supported in local authorities. We also talked to a lot of teachers and to head teachers and uh, conducted interviews with, with a lot of uh, uh, teachers and head teachers working in uh, people referral units and in mainstream contexts. Um, what Using the, that data that we collected, we carried out a system level analysis, which helped us to identify the causes of this rising rate of exclusions. And those causes we can group into three categories. The first is um, wider social factors. So those, inc those uh, include factors that exist beyond the education system that affect children's well-being and their capacity to cope in school, but which aren't really down to schools and colleges to solve. So that might be the rising levels of poverty, rising incidence of mental health problems, and, and the rising incidence of special educational needs in schools. 
Some of them, however, were the direct consequences of, of government policy. Uh, and that includes things like the decision to uh, introduce a more rigorous uh, curriculum uh, and, and increasing the stakes of terminal assessment. So uh, end, end point exams at GCSE or A-level. Um, or to reduce uh, funding to local authorities, schools and other public services that work with children. But some of them were also about the sort of unintended consequences of policy and practice that in fact end up incentivizing exclusion as a course of action. So those occur when policies which are designed to improve accountability and effectiveness uh, um, end up uh, incentivizing exclusions instead. So for example, that might be the desire to improve standards in, in the system through accountability mechanisms, or it might be about how to make the job of teaching easier by advocating for stricter behavior management approaches. What, what the research revealed is that in coming to a solution for, for this, this, right, this, this increasing trend for exclusions, uh, we really need to look at a series of relationships which are critical to children's thriving in school. And, uh, and, and a supportive web of relationships around every child, we think that that could be the solution to preventing exclusion, particularly of the, of the most, most vulnerable children. So those, these kind of relationships break into three different categories. The first is, um, the, uh, is about the, um, the relationship between schools and students themselves. So obviously, exclusions are one of the clearest manifestations of a breakdown in a relationship between a child and the other members of the school community. So relationships between schools and pupils are really going to be a central part of the solution. And, and when we surveyed uh, adults earlier this year about, about um, the about what school should be doing after the after the lockdown, uh, around 83% of our respondents uh, wanted schools to become more relational uh, and ensuring that every child has a has a trusted adult in school who they can approach for support. Um, and the second area uh, is about schools and their relationships with families. Now, behavioural issue, issues that we see in children might be triggered by the challenges that are represented in their in their home life. So strengthening relationships between children and, and their families uh, or their carers and the school is going to be key for, for finding a solution to the exclusion problem. So there's also support for this in the most of the public. In the same survey I mentioned earlier, about 61% of adults wanted to see funding provided to support more direct contact between families and schools once schools reopened as they have done this, this term. And the third area for relationships is about the relationships between schools and other services which are there to support children. Now, a lack of preventative support available before the child reaches a point of exclusion is symptomatic of the, the lack of capacity for schools and other public services to work collaboratively to meet the, the needs of children. So relationships between schools and other public services are really vital. Uh, in, when we surveyed uh, over 1500 teachers and head teachers, we asked what support would most help them reduce how often they remove a pupil from class. And the most popular response was to be able to refer pupils to an in-school mental health practitioner. Uh, and second to that, uh, nearly half of the respondents wanted better access to services such as CAMS um, and early help, suggesting that schools really are looking for support from other professionals in their networks. So we believe this three level focus on relationships could really enhance the educational experience of all children, not only those who experience exclusion or who are at risk of being excluded. And our panel here today are uh, pioneers. They've been featured in our report uh, looking at how those relationships are in the, at, the, at the heart of their approach to reducing exclusions in their, in their jurisdictions. So before I do hand over to my panel, I just want to thank a couple of my uh, colleagues who were the authors of this report. That's Laura Partridge and Fran Landra-Strong, who uh, weren't available to, to present today. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm holding the baton for the two of them. I also really want to thank uh, our supporters, our funders for this project, which is the Betty Messenger Charitable Foundation and the Esme Fairburn Foundation. Uh, so thanks to them. So I'm going to I'm going to go to each of my panelists one by one uh, and ask them to speak to uh, they've, they've all been involved in, in the Pinball Kids research uh, and speak to some of these areas of relationship that we've we focus on in our recommendations. Um, Vic, I'm going to come to you first of all. And as I mentioned in, in the introduction, uh, Passmores was one of the Pinball Kids case study schools. Uh, and I wondered if you could 
kick us off by talking briefly about Passmore's ethos and practice and how, uh, how your commitment to uh, inclusion, inclusion manifests itself in the school um, and in your approach. So, for example, in your approach to transition support or uh, relationship repair. Okay. Um, good morning, or afternoon or evening, depending on what time of day you're watching this, I guess. Um, my name is Vic. My school is in Harlow in Essex. Um, just a little bit of context, it's um, predominantly white, British and working class. Um, it is increasingly diverse, but um, slowly is the best way to describe that. Um, we, are, we serve a town that historically has um, not always been served well by its education institutions, but is, you know, has made significant strides um, over the last few years. There is no doubt though that there's the, the town suffers from the accountability stresses that come with being working in a white British working class environment. Um, and there's always been a school in the town in the 20 years I've been here that's been the one that people don't want to send their children to or have just failed an Ofsted or whatever else. And, and unfortunately that, that fear of being that school um, drives behaviour sometimes for all of us. Um, it's not a criticism of any colleagues. It's it's a it's a very difficult balance to um, accept the fact that you know there is challenges within the community and therefore challenges within our children, um, and the fact that we all have a responsibility for that. When the accountability of um, not doing it well and not hitting the the, the, the boxes, the, the targets the government wants has, without a doubt, caused a strain on that. Now we are. Um, very openly inclusive. We've got uh, about two and a half times the national average of young people with EHCP. Um, now those EHCPs are for a variety of, of different reasons, um, you know, some from physical challenges all the way through to, you know, as you'd expect things like autism and, and stuff like that. Um, so that, that creates a, a wonderfully diverse um, environment in, in from that perspective that our young people do get to empathize and sympathize with other people and that's something that we view as a real strength and a real um a real benefit for these young people when they go on to become adults in 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 the world um however it does mean that the challenge of of, of improving evac scores and you know progress eight scores when exams have become increasingly academic and increasingly exam focused has been a challenge um, so I'm very fortunate. I have a trust board and a governing body that allows us to do what is right for the individual young person. And if that means they don't tick the boxes to pass the EBAC, then that's okay as long as they are able to um, move on from school in a successful way to become contributors to our community. Um, so that that's a, a very good ideal to have and something that we're very proud of, um, apart from when you're in the in the window and the moment you're in that window of, of accountability and they're due to come you know you, <laughs> you you question your sanity in making those choices um as the, as the pressure increases um we are part of a trust of four schools so three primary schools and a secondary school so it's it we, we have a we have an ethos that goes across those four schools but there is no doubt that the the challenges of the system of lack of funding difficult to recruit difficult accountability doesn't make inclusion the easy choice but it should make it it still keeps it as the moral choice and for us that's been the driver i think throughout and as i say very fortunately um having now been here for a long time it is what we do and it is what we're known for um which is is nice in some ways um but without a doubt brings additional challenge i think one of the things that um we uh, picked up on in the report was your approach to uh, employing primary trained specialists as part of your your approach to inclusion i wonder if you could just briefly touch on on, on how on how that works and how that supports uh, vulnerable kids in your in your school yeah so every um year obviously we have an intake transition intake like everybody else does um what we find is we have a significant number of young people who um whose literacy specifically but other challenges sometimes uh, means that accessing the mainstream curriculum from day one is going to be a challenge um, mixed ability teaching is our norm um, however the as that ability range increases and you go from you know very low to very high it certainly does become an increasing challenge for staff so over the last it's been several years now we've employed um, primary trained practitioners who would um, deliver 
it, we call it our nurture classroom, but it would be a, a room where um, those young people, it, it would look and feels like more of a primary classroom than it does a secondary classroom. So they would have 60 to 70% of their curriculum in one classroom with one teacher. That teacher would teach humanities and, and English and maths and everything else but always with a view of literacy being interwoven very specifically to help narrow that gap. Fundamentally, the group, um, the success of the staff in that group shows that it should make it increasingly expensive, which is what it does. So in September, we would normally have had 15 to 20 young people in that group, um, which obviously costs the same as if they had 30. Um, and they would then over time hopefully their literacy would improve and their accessibility of the curriculum would improve and therefore they would be able to move from that class into a even more mainstream setting um and that that has happened you know i look at my i've got 25 in year seven for instance and i've got 12 in year 11 in this current year group so that's a fantastic success for those staff and for those young people and for the other staff that deliver to them but as increasingly makes that harder to justify when finances are less and less so um, I think the skill set that that we, we desire in our staff is the ability to meet all needs and there are I think we what we have accepted is and I think probably accepted because I tried to teach a particular year seven class uh, for a year and struggled and just struggled as a secondary trained teacher struggled um, number bonds to 10 can only be done so many ways so many times until you realize that actually the problem is the teacher and not the students so we decided to go down that route and it has proven to be successful and you know but is something that I have to justify to the trust board and to the governors and to the ESFA every year because from an efficiency point of view it's very inefficient from a societal efficiency point of view it's massively efficient because these young people will engage in education therefore not prove to be a burden on society and finances etc when they are adults so there is there is a, a lot that is to be said for our contribution to the community and society however it costs us a lot of money and it requires a certain level of commitment to look that far into the future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah. Thank, thanks Vic. Um, I'm going to come to, to Luke next if that's okay. Um, and I wonder if you could um, share some of the insights from your work uh, on how you go about uh, building stronger relationships between children and other members of the school community. You know, what are the factors that consistently lead to the breakdown of those relationships and, and what, what interventions do you put in place to, to rebuild those relationships? Thanks, Mark. Um, so, as mentioned in, in the introduction, I've, I've kind of got two hats on. So, I'm, I'm, I'm a youth worker in Hackney, and in that role, I interact with a lot of young people and families, obviously, but also with schools. And then, in my role as head of strategy at Reach Children's Hub, um, I'm involved with with their work, which is in close collaboration with Reach Academy Feltham and and all through school in uh, Feltham. Um, and in terms of the work of the school. There's a massive focus on building positive relationships from the very start of the young person's interaction with the school. So every incoming student has a home visit prior to that student's entry into the school. And from the very start, the focus is on building trusting relationships with the parents where it feels like a genuine partnership between the school and the parents based on the best interests of that child. And then if needed, as the course of the student's education progresses, home visits are repeated and there's a real emphasis on creating conducive conditions for teachers to build up good relationships with parents. So the, the structures, the policies, the procedures of the school are created in such a way that allow for staff to have the time to build up those relationships with parents. And there's a lot of training from the inclusion team and from our family support worker so that all staff are upskilled in positive interactions with parents even or especially those who might be deemed to be difficult to engage or harder to reach or any of those slightly nonsense terms used to describe certain parents that there's a real focus on the fact that the school can only succeed if there are strong relationships with not just the students but the whole family and so there's there's a lot of resource there's a lot of training put into that as a, as a key mechanism that the school uses in order to to get positive behavior in order to safeguard those children but also in order to get good results if you talk to the leadership of the school and you talk to them about who got um you know results that were kind of beyond expected and who got results that were kind of less than expected they say there's a direct correlation between the quality of the relationship that the school had 
with those students and that family and the extent to which th those, re those results were, were good or were above expected. Um, and then in, in my youth work, I interact with a lot of schools where the relationships between students and schools ju just vary hugely. So that there's many schools in Hackney where those relationships are brilliantly positive, where again, they dedicate resource to that. In, in some cases, there are relationship breakdowns where the student and the parent in worst cases feel like the school for whatever reason is, is kind of against them. So often, often these are families where they've had negative interactions with institutions, adults, authorities, services for a long time. The parent may have had that experience with their own school. They may have had that experience with social services or other services. And so the nature of their interactions with schools from the start are on that basis of not necessarily feeling like societal institutions and, and organizations are there for them and are there to support them. So there's a, there's a kind of hesitation. There's a, there's a kind of wariness at the start. And then that's exacerbated if they are treated with coldness, if they perceive themselves to be treated with a lack of respect. And if they perceive themselves to be judged on things which are not, which shouldn't be relevant to a school. So I've worked with a number of parents who feel like they're judged because of their gender, because of their ethnicity, because of their accent, because of their, their, their own educational background and so on. And in worst cases, I, I see a profound kind of anti-school sentiment that develops. And once that's fostered, it's very difficult to, to kind of remake that relationship. And what I also see a lot of is educational shame. In, in both the student and the parent, where for them, anything to do with learning, anything to do with academics, anything to do with education, prompts in them, prompts, prompts in them a profound feeling of, of shame because of their experiences. And it takes a lot of work rebuilding the kind of attachment between a family and education in order to then get more positive outcomes. And some schools see that as core business, some schools see that as central to what they're about, and they tend to have more success. Other schools who maybe have a more narrow academic remit and maybe see parental engagement as a kind of subsidiary focus, I think don't get such good results in that regard. Okay, thanks Luke. Well, one of the things that, um, that REACH is known for, I suppose, is, is its, uh, its role not just as a kind of education provider, but as a kind of as a hub for a range of services or a range of um, support that families might access. And one of the things that we mentioned in the Pinball Kids or focus on the Pinball Kids research is about um, strengthening the relationship between schools and other, other service providers. And I just wonder what what your work either in Hackney or, or Reach um, or, or both has has taught you about the kind of about how to sustain those relationships effectively between organizations? I think kind of prior to, to those relationships being established and built upon there's, there's a kind of a slightly more philosophical question which is about what is the role of a school in its community so some schools view themselves as academic institutions which are there to provide a good education and get good results for, for their students. Other schools recognize that they're the only universal institution in society. There's no other institution that everyone is legally coerced to attend for at least 10 years. And that provides schools with incredible access to, to a huge proportion of the community and therefore they've got massive potential to benefit young people and families beyond just their academic needs and so i think a lot of schools that build really good relationships with other services and with other organizations locally start on that premise we have amazing potential as a school to do great things for our community beyond just hitting certain gcse results or hitting certain ofsted reports and so what reach focuses on heavily is building relationships with services around particular individual students so particular social workers, particular organizations, particular youth services that work with a student, build up really strong, genuine, trusting relationships with them to support that individual student. And then especially through the work of Reach Children's Hub, which is the kind of partner charity to the school, that's where we do a lot more proactive collaboration with um, local children's centers, with local charities, um, with, with um, national charities as well. Um, and that's all based on finding points of alignment and, and building on those and working on the basis of, of common interests. And so with a, a service like CAMS, that there's a clear alignment there where we're all interested in, fundamentally in the mental well-being, not just of individual students, but of the whole school. And so you can, you can start 
um, more innovative conversations straight away if, if you, you're not just talking about th there's this particular concern we've got about these particular students, but it's a wider thing. We share a mission. We share a, a mission to benefit the well-being of the students in this community and, and let's work from there. And that can lead to, to more innovative kind of wide-ranging conversations, I think. Um, and then it's just about dedicating staff resource to maintaining those relationships and because and, it, take, it takes time and it takes perseverance to build and then maintain relationships with a wide variety of services. And obviously at, at REACH, we've been able to do that through a separate charity, which is dedicated to that kind of wider community work. Okay, thanks Luke. Um, Kerry, um, uh, I mentioned earlier that the RSA and Town Hamlets are continuing to work together to, to look at the relationships between families and schools. Um, and I wonder if you could uh, speak to us about um, how in Tower Hamlets you are looking to create a greater understanding of uh, students' behaviour in the context of their family situation and how, how doing that might help prevent exclusions and also where exclusions are, are necessary um, to reduce the, the negative consequences of that for, for students who've been excluded. Yeah, um, thanks, Mark. Just to pick up on both uh, what Vic and Luke said, I mean, I think it absolutely is that we are all part of an ecosystem. And I think that as soon as, if that's an acknowledged um, starting point, then, you know, everything else kind of flows from that. And in Tower Hamlets, um, one of our key mechanisms, really, I suppose, for that is our fair access um, pr protocol and the approach. Um, and it starts from the point where all schools commit, number one, to the principle that they are collectively responsible for all young people in, um, in our system. And that is also including partners. So all partner agencies, um, the voluntary sector, and obviously parents groups, faith groups, et cetera. So we, you know, we start with that as, a, as the foundation. Um, and I think that that's helped us to be able to, to build those relationships, both with the wider system, but with, with families as well. Um, I think that, you know, sort of, again, echoing what Vic said, um, unfortunately, the education system, in my opinion, has moved away from that idea of a collective responsibility and also um, joined up services. I mean, if we think back to Every Child Matters, um, where it was very much, you know, grounding the child in universal services um, towards kind of the best possible outcomes for them and for society. And we've moved, I think, unfortunately, to a very narrow focus, which is, is much more about, you know, educational outcomes, it, it almost kind of disconnected from everything else. And I think that in Tower Hamlets, um, we have been lucky enough uh, to have a number of resources still available to us which i know is not the case in in lots of authorities and we are certainly beginning to feel uh, the pinch uh, especially now around covid um but we have ha we've always worked from a multi-agency partnership um approach so again using the fair access protocol as a example of that the schools as a partnership ask the local authority um to to facilitate that uh, protocol and all of the processes around it so that it was always taking that wide view. So I know that in some um, other authorities where schools either run the, the protocol themselves or there's a kind of, you know, I'll have one if you have one kind of approach, that does make it much more difficult to have the, pr the processes in place which are guaranteeing that equality um, and that access as soon as and the child enters the system. So for, for us, the from the time the pupil enters the system, whether that's through the normal admission route or through the in-year admission route, um, we have a number of different processes that are about placing that child as quickly as possible, putting the support around them that may be necessary, particularly if they're vul already vulnerabilities. And then, um, you know, supporting the schools and um, the, the other partners to think about the journey of that child through the system. So whether or not um, they're beginning to experience issues and what early intervention support can be put in place. Um, and then, you know, should it get to the point of um, needing to move from a particular school, that that whole process is very much around the, creating the right circumstances for a successful transition um, as smooth as possible. 
uh, to the next mainstream school. Um, I mean, we we have in our um, system is embedded the uh, period of intervention. So if a child is managed move, so they've got to the point where they are at serious risk of permanent exclusion, um, they will all almost always have a period of intervention in our pupil referral unit, um, which is the London East Alternative Provision or LEAP. And that's um, one of our, you know, that's a nationally um, recognised um, body uh, who have done amazing things in terms of outcomes and, and um, success stories, really. And they definitely have that multi-agency approach with the family in the centre. Um, and that allows for the child and the family to have opportunities to reflect. Because I think, again, when Luke said, you know, that relationship of mistrust that gets built up over time, um, it could be generational. And certainly in the time that I've worked in Tower Hamlets, um, and I'm not that old, um, I have um, managed to see, you know, two or three generations of families come through uh, our particular um, system so through our social inclusion panel through the behavior support team through the attendance service and seeing how you know you see that multi-generational impact you know one child kind of like falls off the edge and then you know two or three years later you get the same thing happening to the sibling and then you know and and almost always it's to do with that um, trust in the system from the family's point of view, confidence to present their point of view and to feel as if they are really genuinely welcomed, that they are really part of the decision-making process and that they have an influence over what the outcomes can be. I don't think there's any child on the, I mean, parents on the planet who doesn't want the best for their children, um, but it's just sometimes the lens as, as to, you know, what that best outcome could be um, is is not the same as our perhaps more narrow view of what it, a good education looks like. Um, and again, I think where schools can be and, and are, certainly in Tower Hamlets and, and lots of other places, um, very creative and very supportive of what um, the additional vulnerabilities might be um, and putting things in place before those vulnerabilities begin to have an impact on the child, uh, then it is it makes a huge difference. But I mean, some of the work that we are doing, ongoing work that we're doing with the RSA is really going back to basics. I mean, I kind of say that there's nothing new in terms of behaviour uh, management or positive behaviour management. I mean, the things that were relevant in the 80s and Bill Rogers etc those things are still very relevant and and every time it comes down to that key thing about a positive relationship and a key relationship both for the child and for the family and I think you know we can dress it up and call it lots of different things but at the end of the day that's what it comes down to and I think that your report really highlights that again um, I think we can reference lots of other research that that comes to the same conclusion and really I think that um, there's all sorts of things and for me a particular passion is around initial teacher training because I think there's very little and certainly when I trained as a teacher um, there was very little in the uh, curriculum for me as a teacher um, to help me to understand the context that some of the students who are going to come into my classroom might be experiencing or coming from. Um, I think that having, um, I mean, primary schools, again, traditionally are better at this than secondary schools, but that relationship with the family, um, when a child is in primary school quite often that parent will be seeing the teacher every single day seeing them at the school gate having hello goodbye whereas of course as soon as that moves to secondary it becomes a much more formal arrangement and you know with some families that's where things start to go wrong um, so we've had some really great practice in some of our secondary schools where for example um, they run a cooking class for all year seven parents um, so that parents can just come in and you know get to know staff and the school feel confident in the school you know that feeling that you have when you um when you as a teacher walk around the school as if it's your second home you know that's you know every nook and cranny and you feel completely comfortable and at home in that environment well the same thing you know trying to get parents and, and pupils to feel the same way about the school that it's you know it's their other safe place um and also then on the flip side, helping schools and staffing right from the receptionist and the facilities manager all the way through to the head teacher 
um, of understanding that sometimes when you're in your safe space, that means you're going to display behavior that is not perfect because you actually feel able to do that because you're not afraid of the consequences, which you may be on the street or at home. Um, and I think that that um, aspect of tra ongoing training and support for staff um, really helping them to understand how to have those positive conversations with families, um, how to engage families from the very word go um, in terms of, of their welcome into the school and not just laying out, you know, these are the school's expectations, you've got to reach them. It's about, you know, this is what we're going to do as a partnership um, with you and your child. And then in those very difficult points of transition, so again, coming back to where the fair access kind of hard end of the fair access is, which is about the managed move or the move into alternative provision, you know, really paying attention to the, to the relationship with the family. I mean, we do a lot of um, parent voice feedback and over and over again, we get um, feedback that says, you know, despite the fact that schools have invested a lot of time in, in trying to explain the whole system to the family, trying to explain what the consequences might be, what the outcomes are, um, at the point of having that conversation, because it's such an emotionally charged time where the child is feeling um, rejected uh, by the school, no matter how sensitively that conversation is or, or that feeling is, but, and the parent is feeling incredibly probably disappointed uh, because the, the school they chose for their child is no longer the school that the child's going to remain at. And then also um, thinking about uh, their own anxieties about the, about the future. What does the future hold? What's, what does this mean? Um, you know, having that, so we are very lucky, as I say, with this intervention um, program because the parent and the child come to an environment where that's really understood and they get a lot of opportunity to kind of try and process that, process their feelings around that, um, understand what went wrong in the first context and what they might need in terms of skills or understanding or experience in order to make things successful in the future. Um, and I think because of that, we, you know, we've been lucky enough to say that 93% of our managed moves result in a ongoing um, successful placement in the following mainstream school or in some cases which again I feel very passionate about an appropriate placement in alternative provision because at the end of the day some children have got such a level of need that no mainstream school um, is able to meet those needs because of the things that Vic outlined the resources the funding the ratios of staff all of those things and I think that high quality alternative provision is absolutely essential in the system um, and and often that's where some of the healing happens for parents as well um, having that really close relationship with a with a um, you know a really skilled um, team of staff who understand where that parent is coming from that can quite often support and unravel some of the issues that have occurred um, in that with that child which can then have an impact on their younger siblings um, so, I mean, the messages are not new. They are good relationships, good training, early intervention, um, and, you know, the, the recognition, really, that it is a whole system approach. It is not just, there's no one agency. Schools are absolutely at the heart of everything, um, and all the rest of us need to just, you know, feed in as much as we possibly can in order to support the schools to be able to um, achieve that role because in many ways that phrase in loco parentis is exactly what schools are you know they are the school they are the parents sometimes they're parenting the parents as well as the children um, and they are the family they represent the family structure um, that perhaps not all um, all children have um, a, a positive experience of okay thanks Kerry that's uh that's that's we've, we've covered a lot of ground there uh um so uh uh emmanuel i'm going to come to you next if that's okay um so uh during the the research phase for the pinball kids uh project um you were part of a, a focus group where we discussed some themes uh, that ended up featuring uh, really heavily in the in the report i wonder if you could talk us through uh some of those themes that felt most important to you given your own personal experience of exclusion and also your your work uh doing youth community work um, thank you, uh, Mark. Um, as we saw in the report, um, school exclusions have gone up by 60%. And a lot of school exclusions lead to the prison to pipeline. 
Um, and evidence based to support that is that the Ministry of Justice conducted a study which found that 63% of prisoners reported being fixed a fixed period of exclusion when, when in schools and 42% of prisoners reported being permanently excluded. The excluded prisoners were also more likely to repeat offenders than other prisoners. And these punitive approaches that we see happening within um, schools, they fail to work. They fail to um, bring justice to a community that is already marginalised. So what we need to do is move away from um, these punitive approaches as schools and move towards um, providing community support and actually tackling the core issue that we have within schools. Um, me personally, I've been excluded and I had to, um, I got sent back to Uganda to study because my mum felt like um, the school system in this country is failing me and failing to provide my needs. And it's quite um, sad really that the schools are just not meeting the needs of the community anymore. And when we look at academies as well, a lot of them solely focus on the output of grades and don't focus on the social factors and the issues that communities might be facing. And um, personally, and I know a lot of people that I work with, especially young youth leaders and young campaigners, we're advocating for a more radical stance on school exclusion, which is just to solely abolish them all. And to just kind of, we're calling for the government and other people and the schools to actually tackle the issues that are happening in communities, such as the mental health crisis that might be going on. Poverty is the biggest form of violence that communities face. And if these were tackled, this will cause the disparities within school exclusions to decrease. So, yeah. Uh, thanks, Emmanuel. I wonder if, um, if, in reflecting on your own experiences, the other panellists today have talked a lot about the importance of relationships and not least the kind of key relationship between, uh, between a, a pupil and a, a trusted member of staff um, and also that relationship between that pupil's family or carers and, uh, and network and, and that key member of staff. I wonder if there's some, if, if that, if your own sort of experiences of exclusion kind of speak to that point at all, or whether there's things that could have happened for you uh, with regard to kind of relationships with staff that might have supported your, you to, to have a different experience of school. Yeah, um, when I was in school, I didn't really have any um, support from anybody when I was growing up. So that's why I went, just got sent to Uganda. There, it was quite different the way they do education. So it didn't really like, it was completely different to the way it was in um, the UK. So we had more black representatives there, of course, because everybody in the population was black. And um, it's, it gave me a sense of identity and belonging. And I felt more welcome to study and in a coercive environment. Then when I came here as well, I came back, I went to college and I felt like that same disenfranchisement happened as, as well. And it's not until um, I had college teachers which looked like me and spoke to me and spoke to me in a sense like a father figure where um, I felt more um, inclined to be in the education system and I felt like it wasn't, I felt like my needs were being met. So yeah. Thanks, Emmanuel. I think that speaks really directly to Kerry's, one of Kerry's final points about this being in loco parentis, that actually that's something which is really felt both by students as well as the, the as, as well as the schools. Um, one of the things that we wanted to talk about today, obviously, um, when the, uh, is, is the impact of COVID uh, and the, the lockdown on, on school exclusions. When we published the report, uh, in fact, uh, this event was uh, due to take place uh, at the end of March, um, just after we published the report. And obviously, the world's quite different now to how it was then. And, I, and, I, and one of the things that the RSA has been really interested in uh, over the last few months is looking at how the changes that have been um, uh, brought about as a result of COVID uh, in policy or in, in sort of organisational behaviour might be things that we either want to uh, continue in the future uh, or that reveal um, uh, underlying problems or challenges that we want to kind of actually now take take the opportunity now to kind of say well we can since we stop this or put a pause on it why don't we stop it for the future or to kind of uh, have revealed new ways of um, 
new opportunities for rethinking the problems that up until now have been fairly intractable. And I just wonder whether um, you know any of the panel could uh, could speak to speak to any of those points about whether about how, how you've responded to COVID in the first instance, um, what you've stopped or started, uh, and what you think might need to restart or be reamplified once uh, once this crisis is is over. Um, you're I'm very happy. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm very happy. To, I'm very happy to contribute. Um, I guess the the balance for me, and we've been very fortunate to gain some support from a mental health consultant called Mike Armiger, and he's been fantastic in. Um, running some training for staff during the lock, the first lockdown, and um, and trying to trying to, we've had to accept coming back into schools that there is there is an amount of stress in people's lives at the moment, and actually I think it's really important for for our school and our staff to sit and expect that and understand that that is going to happen. Families are feeling stressed. You know, our young people are very much reflective of their home environment with regards to that. And for us, it's been um, clear that, you know, we, the acceptance of the fact there's an amount of stress is okay. So stress is understandable, but distress is unacceptable. And, and that, that continuum between stress to distress is, is one that, you know, we've tried to focus on. Because, you know, year 11 coming back, having not missed, been in school for six months, they have a level of stress in their lives, which is understandable and almost beneficial if handled well. But when that stress becomes distress and therefore they become less functioning, then, you know, it, it becomes a challenge for schools because that distress will then manifest itself in behaviour. And, you know, as much as, you know, quite rightly, this, the, the report focuses on um, those young people that are removed from the schools and, you know, the, the rise in that. But there's an accept, we, you know, we have to accept as school leaders and people who work in education that the, the one child that is excluded has probably had a negative effect on many other children within their learning environment or their community. And, and that balance between meeting the sp very specific needs of an individual whilst meeting the collective needs of a, of a class or a school or a town, um, that, that's where there's a difference and that's where that gap that gap is fundamentally the one that needs to be sorted out. And, you know, whilst you add on accountability, whilst you add on less funding, while you add on um, families in distress, while you add on, you know, mental health support being very much more stressed, there's, there's an element of schools are the only gig at the moment that are dealing with so much of this. And I think we, we've got to accept the fact that that's our role. You know, I'm pleased that head teachers have had to accept the fact that we are part of the childcare environment in this town, in this country. You know, we do offer childcare. We, we also offer education, of course, but we offer a safe place. But actually, can we keep and maintain a safe place whilst our young people are in that increasingly stressed environment? And there's a, a massive need for education for staff, not just for the students. Just to say, I absolutely echo that. Um, I think... At the moment, I think we, despite the enormous amount of stress that schools and school leaders particularly are experiencing with closures and you know, rolling programs of self-isolation, etc., um, I personally have been counting the attendance of 106 schools every day for the last six months. And that all is going to have a knock-on effect in terms of the mental health of, again, the staff underpinning the whole system. Um, I know from speaking to head teacher colleagues that, you know, they're increasingly concerned about the mental well-being of their staff um, because of trying to operate in this kind of crisis uh, mode. Um, you can only do it for so long before you run out of that kind of emotional energy that is required. And then the knock-on effect that that will have on young people. I mean, I think that there's been um, some really positive, both acknowledgement kind of nationally um, and probably globally of the importance of teachers and, and, and schools and all the staff that work in schools um, and how desperately grateful many parents are that the second lockdown has not included a closure of schools. Um, and so, you know, hopefully that will be something that remains front and center with the government that, you know, actually it's demonstrated the importance of schools in the whole system again. Um, but also that I worry that the crisis is yet to come um, in terms of mental health and exclusions. I mean, our schools 
have been incredibly tolerant, um, actually, you know, despite having the anxiety that they themselves are feeling about trying to keep children safe and families safe and getting a lot of um, anxiety reflected from parents about, you know, is it safe to come to school? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? Trying to be kind of, uh, you know, uh, public health professionals as well as educational uh, educationalists, I think, um, you know, there is a looming crisis when it feels like things have gone back to normal um, and all of that kind of unprocessed trauma and anxiety uh, is, is suddenly on the horizon um, and schools are forced to deal with that. And I think that will manifest itself. Everybody just wants to get back to normal. A lot of children who've been out of school for, you know, long periods of time have suddenly realised they don't want to be out of school and that's been positive. I mean, we had, you know, a list of children that we thought were going to be managed move before the lockdown. That's gone down by two thirds. Those children are back in school and doing relatively well because they've realised they want to be there. So we've got to try and capitalise on those positives. Um, but in, you know, if we don't get a significant investment in the system to deal with the outcomes and um, the fallout, really, if you like, of this continuous anxiety and stress that the whole of society is dealing with. Um, I do think that, you know, six months, a year down the line, we're going to see this, the thing that we worried about now that we were worried about before in terms of the rise of exclusions. I, you know, I can predict almost that if we cannot put a huge amount of support in place, that that is going to be something um, that we suddenly see escalate even faster. And, um, you know, the impact on society. I mean, I think one of the key points in your report was about the impact of a child who's excluded um, multiple times and that the cost to society, if you really want to put it in monetary terms, of course, I know none of us want to do that, but the, that's reality. 370,000 um, for every child who's in that situation. And that obviously is, can be multiplied by tens of thousands in some circumstances. Um, is enormous. So actually the cost of putting in even, you know, a recovery package of several million is, is going to be small fry in comparison to actually the cost of that bounce back effect that's going to that is going to happen unless we put something in place um, and so I think that that in terms of a call out to the government to the DfE um, and to schools is really a, a kind of key thing is that there will come a time when you want things to be back to normal but they won't be um, and a lot of that suppressed anxiety and trauma um, is going to suddenly emerge in a way that perhaps without that education that Vic was talking about for staff as well as for students um, and families, you know, helping them to understand what they've actually been through and how to process it. Um, it's all very well to say the blitz spirit, et cetera, but we all know actually the impact of um, the emotional and mental health impact following the world wars um, on, you know, both the soldiers and their families who'd experienced extreme um, anxiety and fear during that period. You know, it didn't just go back to normal. If you look in the 50s and 60s in terms of, of um, the, the impact on education and on society, it was massive. So I don't think we can underestimate what the impact of this could be if we don't um, act to do something. And I think that there's, well, there was a lot of talk from the DfE in the early part of um, the summer holidays about a recovery curriculum and the emotional, you know, mental health crisis that was looming. But I personally, from a local authority point of view, haven't seen anything um, that actually says I can expand the services that I offer to support the schools and the families that I work with um, to address that, you know, um, like even the, the tutoring um, program, which was meant to be there to catch up, that doesn't address children with very vulnerable um, backgrounds and who would struggle to form that positive relationship. We're talking massive organisations where it's online, you know, and you, you log in and it's a person very remote, maybe not even a person. Um, and actually those children who are already vulnerable before this all happened, um, they are the ones who really need that key relationship. And if that comes through tutoring, then it needs to come from a local source or at least from people who are experienced working with children with those vulnerabilities, not um, a corporation who are putting in place, you know, perhaps a load of university students, not that, Emmanuel, I'm 
uh, degrading university students at all. They are fantastic, but without the right training and support, um, if they didn't have someone, you know, your kind of background, and they're dealing with children who don't want to engage or, or, or feel anxious or acting out because they are anxious about the learning process, how are they going to deal with that? You know, they're not, they're not trained. Um, and that's really one of my anxieties. So a billion pounds put into something that potentially is not going to address um, the needs of the most vulnerable. Sorry, that's my rant. <laughs> I think it speaks to your earlier point about the importance of teacher training more generally in, in terms of understanding how to create a nurturing and an inclusive environment for, for all, all students. Um, so thanks, thanks, Kerry. I, uh, Luke, um, I, I wonder if you might speak about sort of any of the sort of innovations that have come about th during the, this COVID crisis that you yeah. put in place at, um, in either of the context you're working in. Well, I, I think basically my hope is that this crisis will lead to quite a fundamental rethink about our education system and about what schools are for. Vic said earlier that inclusion is not the easy choice. That's a damning indictment of our education system. Inclu inclusion means giving every child the education and the support that they need. If our education system disincentivizes inclusion, our education system is doing a bad job. And what we've seen through the coronavirus crisis is that the schools that are best equipped to deal with the difficulties that students have outside the school gates that will inevitably come into the school have done the best and, and have had the, the, the greatest positive impact on the families in their community. The schools that have the best relationships with other local services, such as food banks or youth centers or community centers, have been able to nimbly get support to the families who need it the, the quickest. We, at the moment, the education system is such that, as Emmanuel said, the default response to complex difficulties in families in too many cases is a punitive one. We've got a hideously unequal society in which complex difficulties are really concentrated in certain communities. And then we've got an education system which is incentivized to respond without sufficient resource in a punitive manner to that. And so there's a kind of toxic situation in which, as the report mentions, those wider societal factors and the incentives in the system are such that a large number of students end up being fundamentally excluded from, from the system as a whole. What coronavirus, I think, has, has hopefully shown is that there are hugely complex difficulties in a lot of societies, in a lot of our communities that weren't created by coronavirus. They just exacerbated existing issues, number one. And number two, schools are incredibly well equipped to address those difficulties if they have sufficient funding and if there's the right policy environment to encourage them to be inclusive. And so hopefully this crisis could lead to quite substantial changes where schools, as Kerry mentioned, are given the support that they need to provide the care and support that their communities need. And then hopefully in the longer term, as Emmanuel has alluded to, there'll be a massive reduction in poverty and inequality because ultimately in the longer term, that's the only thing that is going to address these issues. So we need massively more funding and incentivization for inclusion in schools. Ultimately, we need substantially less inequality and poverty. I, I wonder if some of the sort of responses to the uh, the school meal funding that uh, that sort of really caught the public's imagination in the summer and half term recently is a kind of indication of uh, a kind of wider consensus on that point than than the government might have uh, might have imagined um, and, and maybe gives us some sort of uh, hope for a, a political response in in that regard. Um, I, I won't make that a question. You don't have to. You don't, I don't have to draw you out on that one, um, Emmanuel. I, I wonder if um, uh, on that on the point of uh, kind of COVID and and how it's impacted young people. We've heard sort of talk about how how institutions are responding and, and what what the sort of political response might be. But I wonder if your your work directly with children and young people um, uh, in you because you do youth community work. Whether you've kind of had some of that you've experienced some of that impact firsthand on some some of the kind of anxiety or or mental health considerations that Kerry in particular was was talking about yeah in terms of um studying for young people during this time especially those that have been excluded and marginalized from the system most of them come from um from areas where it's low funded so they don't have the equipment to even study. So of course that's gonna have an impact on their mental health and how they're going to view education. 
and those that are already are marginalized by the system are as luke said earlier is that covid19 is what it's a it's it's exacerbated everything that we have within inequality within our society and a lot of the young people that we work with have been out of education at the first lockdown that we had there was sick they went out they went out with like six months without receiving any like online learning and so forth because of this and such things need to be addressed rapidly and quickly yeah Okay, thanks, Emmanuel. Well, um, we are almost out of time. Um, in fact, probably beyond out of time. Uh, but I, before we sign off, I just wonder if I might come to each of you in turn um, and end on a on a sort of a positive note and kind of look forward to kind of uh, opportunities for change in the future. And I wonder if um, you could offer your top tip for uh, to schools looking to or school systems looking to reduce uh, exclusions. Uh, I'm going to come to you clockwise as I've got you on my screen. Uh, so Luke, I'm going to uh, come to you first. Damn, you should have gone anti clockwise. Uh, I guess two quick things. I think there's there's a kind of cliche that I think is helpful, which um, is where there are significant issues with students or families to view that as a professional puzzle to be addressed, rather than doing, viewing it as a kind of problem in that student or, or in that parent. And then just secondly, quickly, I think often schools are great at arranging team around the family or team around the child kind of meetings and coordinating services around particular individuals. I think schools that do a really good job at inclusion effectively have like a team around the school where they've got those really brilliant connections with the local services. They know who to pull upon from the local community to, to create the support that the school and each individual needs. And I think building on that, that kind of principle makes a big difference as well. Okay, thank you, Luke. Uh, Emmanuel. Um, I would say, mm, this might be a bit radical, but I would say school exclusions just need to be abolished completely and we just need to revisit community and support and safety, to be honest. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Vic. Um, I've got two, if that's okay. So one is um, to encourage schools to have a designated member of staff uh, um, to connect with the mental health services in the location because our single point of contact for that is the most influential uh, member of staff we have with regard to gaining services and support for young people. And the reason she has that is because she has built relationships up as well, just like we started this conversation with. And the second thing is that locations need to remove the competition from them and, and increase the collaboration. Um, I do not want to beat the school down the road. I want that school to be as successful as mine is and the children in it. And I think if we can, if we can move to a system where that is the consensus, then we'll be healthy. And I don't think that's just an academy issue, by the way. I think that's an education issue driven by accountability. Thanks, Vic. And uh, Kerry? Yeah, um, basically building on those points from everyone else, really, um, absolutely collaboration and partnership is the key. Um, local authorities and local areas need to be given the support to um, encourage that and strengthen those partnerships. Um, absolutely what Vic says, you know, competition doesn't achieve anything for anyone. Um, and it's that sense of collective responsibility. And then the second thing is for me is education, education, education for staff. Um, you know, and, and always having that as a um, central theme uh, that runs through everything we do is supporting our staff to continuously develop their skills um, and in working with families and working with children and recognising the signs that might lead to something um, in the future. So, uh, you know, and that just needs to be prioritised and there needs to be, again, funding um, around that uh, specifically. Thanks, Kerry. And if, if I can sort of put some words into your collective mouth, um, it's, it's one of the things that's coming across strongly to me is that sense that um, in terms of the public and political imagination, we need to think about schools not only as educational institutions, but also civic institutions as part of the, 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 the infrastructure of local communities. Um, and that uh, whether it's because all, all people are coerced into going or, or because all people do end up going or most people end up going uh, that actually there are there are a convenient point to kind of access a whole lot of services but also possibly even even the the kind of difficult relationships some people have with schools notwithstanding there might be a, might be a softer approach to 
dealing with difficult situations and um, challenging family situations than some of the other public services that uh, the families might engage with. Um, and, and the other thing is that the, it seems to me that the notion of what it means to be a successful school uh, needs, needs challenging. Uh, that at the moment, a kind of narrow definition of success based on purely on attainment doesn't really reflect the challenges that schools are, are facing, the challenges that students are facing and overcoming in their lives. Um, and, and, and nor does it reflect what, what role, what function that schools really play in, in building strong communities and building flourishing lives for individual students. Um, so, uh, I, Mark, can I just add in, can I just say that there's a really clear indicator of that, of the, 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 about the rewarding the right behaviour. Um, if you just take into a fact that the school's outcomes is a limiting factor on a school's overall Ofsted grade, but how well they look after their students isn't. Okay, a real clear indication of uh, of that. Okay, thanks, Vic. Uh, um, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Vic. Thanks, uh, Kerry. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Emmanuel, uh, for uh, taking part in the conversation today. Uh, thanks, everybody, for for joining and listening and watching in online. Um, if you have been watching along, please do head over to the RSA website now for links to explore uh, our speakers' research, uh, speakers' work further, and our own research further. Um, and you'll be able to have a look at the Pinball Kids report and also find out about next steps in our work around preventing school exclusions. Um, we'd really love to hear your ideas on how we create a fairer and stronger support system for young people. So do please join the conversation on social media using the hashtag, hashtag Pinball Kids. Thanks very much, everybody, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.